Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! This year's Peace Prize is awarded to human rights advocate Alice Bialyatsky from Belarus. The Russian Human Rights Organization Memorial and the Ukrainian Human Rights Organization Center for Civil Liberties. Over seven months after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Nobel Committee awards this year's Peace Prize to human rights groups in Russia and Ukraine, as well as an imprisoned activist from Belarus. We'll go to Moscow to speak with the former executive director of one of the closed-down groups, the Memorial Human Rights Center. We'll also speak to the head of the Right Livelihood Foundation in Stockholm. All three winners of the Nobel are Right Livelihood laureates. Then President Biden pardons thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. We'll talk to the Drug Policy Alliance. I think we're ready to have serious, deep, comprehensive conversations about how to um, deschedule cannabis, how to repair the harms in communities, how to create a space where cannabis is no longer prohibited, and that we actually move to not just pardons, but full expungement, as well as protections for non-citizens. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden said Thursday he'll pardon anyone convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law in a major step towards the decriminalization of cannabis. Biden announced his plan in a video posted on social media. I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offense, federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. Biden also called on governors to pardon people found guilty of marijuana charges on the state level where most convictions occur. The Drug Policy Alliance applauded Biden's move as a good first step, but added, quote, we, however, hope that the Biden administration will go further and fully deschedule marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act. We'll have more with the Drug Policy Alliance director, Cassandra Frederick, later in the broadcast. In Ukraine, the death toll from missile strikes in the city of Zaporizhia has risen to 11 after rescue crews combed through the rubble of a five-story apartment complex flattened by a Russian assault Thursday. Twenty-one survivors were pulled from the blast site. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the death toll rose after a Russian strike fell on first responders who rushed to the site, a tactic known as a double-tap strike. 
In Zaporizhia, after the first rocket strike today, when people came to pick apart the rubble, Russia conducted a second rocket strike. Absolute vileness, absolute evil. And there have been thousands of instances of this already, and there could be thousands more, unfortunately. Zelensky's comments Thursday came as he met with the head of the U.N.'s International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, in Kyiv. Their meeting came a day after Russian President Vladimir Putin declared the occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to be Russian federal property. Grossi rejected Putin's assertion and repeated his call for the establishment of a nuclear safety and security protection zone around Zaporizhia plant, where fierce fighting has threatened to trigger a radiation disaster. The staff uh, at the plant is operating under almost unbearable circumstances. The stress, the uncertainty, not knowing what is going to happen. We are here in a conflict. We are here in a war. We want this war to stop. The war should stop immediately. And of course, uh, the position of the IAEA is that this facility um. is a Ukrainian facility. President Biden has warned the world faces the threat of Armageddon if Russian President Vladimir Putin decides to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Biden was speaking at a Thursday evening fundraiser for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee at the home of James Murdoch, son of media mogul Rupert Murdoch in New York. In widely quoted remarks, Biden said, quote, for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of nuclear weapons if, in fact, things continue down the path they're going. Putin's not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons, because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming, Biden said. The 2022 Nobel Peace Prize will be awarded to imprisoned Belarus human rights activists Alice Bialetsky, as well as the Russian group Memorial and the Ukrainian organization Center for Civil Liberties. The Norwegian Nobel Committee announced this year's Peace Prize winners at a ceremony this morning in Oslo. They have made an outstanding effort to document war crimes, human rights, abuses and the abuse of power. Together, they demonstrate the significance of civil society for peace and democracy. This year's Peace Prize announcement came as Russian President Vladimir Putin turned 70 years old today. It's also the anniversary of the assassination of the crusading human rights and anti-corruption reporter Anna Politkovskaya, a fierce critic of Putin and Russia's war in Chechnya. After headlines, we'll go to Moscow to speak with the former executive director of the Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow before it was shut down by the Russian government. The death toll from Hurricane Ian has topped 131, with most of the victims in Florida, making Ian second only to Hurricane Katrina among the deadliest storms to hit the mainland U.S. this century. On Thursday, an analysis published by the group CoreLogic estimated total flood and wind losses from Hurricane Ian add up to, what, $70 billion. The Florida Power and Light Company says it's restored power to over 2.1 million customers, with fewer than 100,000 customers 
customers in the hardest-hit areas still remaining in the dark. Meanwhile, some 82,000 homes and businesses in Puerto Rico still lack power Thursday, more than two weeks after Hurricane Fiona collapsed the island's fragile electrical grid. A new report finds the World Bank has financed at least $14.8 billion in fossil fuel development since the signing of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. That's despite a pledge by World Bank officials five years ago to stop supporting oil and gas projects within two years. A campaigner with the group Glasgow Actions Team said, quote, if the World Bank wants to be a part of the solution rather than the problem, it needs to stop funding fossil fuels and unlock billions in order to support the transition to renewable energy across the globe and end poverty and inequality, unquote. In Washington, D.C., at least 13 immigrant justice advocates were arrested Thursday while protesting this week's Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling, deeming the Obama-era DACA, that's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, illegal. Those already enrolled in the program are still allowed to renew their DACA, but new applicants are blocked. Advocates are also demanding Congress enact permanent immigration relief for undocumented people. DACA recipients Diana Plago and Cindy Colade joined Thursday's protests. This is, I can't count what number of times this is that I'm anxiously awaiting on a court decision and unsure of what's going to happen and maybe it'll ruin our futures. Like, I don't, I don't know. And it's, and it's really hard to live life that way. We want to make sure that all of the children that has been part of this country, no matter what of their paper situation or anything, that with DACA, it will help them stay and be part of this community and pay the taxes and pay everything that this country needs. In August, the Biden administration turned DACA into a federal regulation to protect it from further legal challenges. That rule is scheduled to take effect October 31st. DACA was enacted in 2012, has shielded hundreds of thousands of immigrants who were brought to the U.S.'s children from deportation and granted them work permits here in the United States. In New Mexico, immigrant justice organizations report a group of asylum seekers held at the Torrance County Detention Facility have been on hunger strike since last week, protesting inhumane and unsanitary conditions. The asylum seekers are denouncing chronic medical neglect, inedible food and horrific abuse at Torrance, which is run by the private prison corporation CoreCivic. Demands are mounting to shut down the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center following the August death by suicide of 23-year-old Kelsey Vial an asylum seeker from Brazil. This is Orlando de los Santos, a hunger striker and asylum seeker from the Dominican Republic who's been detained at Corinth since July. We're demanding our freedom. No more deportations. We demand to be treated equal and to be released. No human being should be detained here. We are being abused by ICE guards and by the guards working at this detention center. When it rains, my cell floods with water. It's full of mosquitoes, and the food they serve us is often raw. The city of Rochester, New York, has agreed to pay a $12 million settlement to the family of Daniel Prude, a black man killed by police in March 2020. Prude died from asphyxiation after Rochester police officers handcuffed him while he was naked, put a head over his head, then pushed his face into the freezing cold ground for two minutes while kneeling on his back.
Last year, a grand jury decided not to file charges against the officers involved in Prude's death. The Prude family filed a lawsuit two years ago. The city of Rochester has not admitted liability in Prude's killing and did not pay punitive damages. In more news from New York, a federal judge has blocked major portions of a state law restricting who can carry concealed firearms in public spaces. District Court Judge Glenn Sudeby ruled Thursday New York's attempts to bar guns from so-called sensitive spaces, including schools, libraries, museums and theaters, violates the constitutional right to carry a firearm for the purposes of self-defense. New York Attorney General Letitia James has promised to appeal Thursday's ruling. In Mexico, at least 20 people were killed in the southern state of Guerrero after gunmen wearing ski masks burst into the town hall in the city of San Miguel Totalapan on Wednesday and opened fire during a meeting hosted by the local mayor. The mayor, Conrado Mendoza, was among those killed, as well as his father, who is a former mayor. The gunman reportedly belonged to a local drug gang that's in a dispute with a rival drug smuggling group. An investigation of the shooting is underway. In London, thousands of supporters of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange are planning to form a human chain outside the British Parliament Saturday as they demand the United Kingdom cancel plans to extradite Assange to the United States to face charges that could see him jailed for life. Assange's U.S. supporters are planning a similar rally near the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Saturday, where they'll demand that Biden administration cancel plans to try Assange on hacking charges and 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act. If convicted, Julian Assange faces up to 175 years in prison in the United States. Federal prosecutors believe they've gathered enough evidence to charge President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, with tax crimes and a false statement related to a gun purchase. That's according to The Washington Post, which reports a final decision has to be made by the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who was appointed by former President Donald Trump. The investigation into Hunter Biden began in 2018 and was a central issue in Trump's unsuccessful reelection campaign in 2020. And the National Football League is once again facing scrutiny over its policy on traumatic brain injuries and concussions following a series of high-profile head injuries this season. On Thursday evening, Indianapolis Colts running back Naeem Hines was pulled from a game against the Denver Broncos after he struggled to get to his feet after he was struck in the head. This comes after Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Takavailoa suffered a horrifying concussion in a game against the Cincinnati Bengals in September. This week, the neuropathologist, Dr. Bennett Omalu, whose work was depicted in the 2015 film Concussion, said the 24-year-old star should retire from football. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, over seven months after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to three human rights groups in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus, as well as an imprisoned activist from Belarus. We'll look at this year's winners. Stay with us.
by the Belarusian Free Choir. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has announced the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize will be awarded to the imprisoned human rights activist Alas Bialyatsky from Belarus, as well as the Russian human rights group Memorial and the Ukrainian organization Center for Civil Liberties. The Norwegian Nobel Committee announced this year's Peace Prize winners at a ceremony this morning in Oslo. By awarding the Nobel Peace Prize for 2022 to Alice Bialyatsky Memorial and the Center for Civil Liberties, the Norwegian Nobel Committee wishes to honor three outstanding champions of human rights, democracy, and peaceful coexistence in the neighbor countries Belarus, Russia and Ukraine. Through their consistent efforts in favor of human values, anti-militarism and principles of law, this year's laureates have revitalized and honored Alfred Nobel's vision of peace and fraternity between nations, a vision most needed in the world today. After the Nobel Committee's announcement, Anna Chushova of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine spoke to reporters. I am happy. I am delighted to be part of the team that is so motivated, that does such wonderful things for our country. We understand that defenders of law are catalysts of changes, and this recognition motivates us even more to introduce these changes into our society. When the full-scale aggression started, we obviously did not sit idle. We organized a team of defenders of law, which actively documented war crimes. We have logged over 20,000 war crimes so far, and this is done in order to punish all perpetrators. We're joined now by two guests. Joining us from Stockholm, Sweden, is Ulla Vanukskev. He is executive director of the Stockholm-based Right Livelihood Award Foundation. All three winners of this year's Nobel Peace Prize are Right Livelihood laureates. And with us in Moscow is Anna Dubrovolskaya. She is the former executive director of the Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow, which was part of the group Memorial, which has been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Her organization was shut down by the Russian government. Anna, let's begin with you, the significance of this announcement. Did you know before the announcement that your group was going to win the Nobel Peace Prize? And what does this mean for what's happening right now in Russia? Mm-hmm. Uh, hello, Amy. Uh, no, I had no idea that uh, we can be uh, winners uh, this year. Memorial have been nominated several uh, few times before, and some of our staff members have been nominated to the Nobel Peace Prize before. And, of course, it's a great honor. Um, I'm, though I'm no longer with Memorial, I still keep uh, receiving congratulations from all over the world, and people consider this as a common victory for civil society, uh, 
not just in Russia, because uh, there is it has some importance in Russia, but it's extremely important now when there is a war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. It is extremely important now to support uh, organizations in all of those countries, and especially it is important for Alex, who is behind the bars. Uh, in Russia, I'm sure it will also have some significant um, importance uh, because Memorial keeps uh, facing huge difficulties in continuation of its work, uh, although the legal entities have been shut down. So I'm hoping that uh, Russian authorities will step back. But unfortunately, as we know, it didn't help uh, for example, Novaya Gazeta, whose uh, uh, editor-in-chief was awarded uh, uh, the Peace Prize before. Uh, so, unfortunately, no no uh, bright forecast here. And talk about what Memorial worked on when it was allowed to function and what needs to be done right now in Russia. Uh, when Memorial was able to function, we did uh, lots of things. Uh, uh, we had two major... Um, laws of work, so to say. We had the uh, pillar related to historical remembrance, uh, Soviet past, the political repressions during Soviet time, uh, and memorization of uh, those uh, events. And we had this human rights wing, which I was the, the chair of. Uh, we worked uh, with documenting the war crimes in Chechnya. We documented uh, human rights violations all over the country. We helped uh, the victims of political uh, repressions and also provided uh, various uh, legal aid to the victims of human rights violations everywhere. Right now, uh, this all better be continued because modern Russia is uh, the place where lots of violations is happening. And actually, the current events is the continuation of the thought that has been promoted for memorial by memorial for a long period of time, that if you have a human rights violation within the country, which are ignored and where you have impu impunity instead of... Uh, uh, putting people uh, responsible for those human rights violations, uh, it means that sooner or later it will go beyond the borders, uh, beyond the national borders of the country, and that's what we see uh, exactly now uh, with Russia, Ukraine, before with Georgia, and with some other countries as well. In March, Democracy Now! spoke to Alexandra Matvichuk, the head of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine, which won the Nobel Peace Prize today. This is what she said then. When the war started, I, I asked myself, do I feel a fear? And I was emotional, but I don't have fear. I have two main emotions. The first emotion is anger. I really anger as a millions of Ukrainians that Russia invades to our country, that Russia tried to stop our democratic choice, that Russia tried to impose their logic of Soviet Union and push us away to the past, which we don't want to return to. And but most uh, big emotion is love. This is a love to my country. This is a love to our people. It's love to our values. And we will stand for it. And this is Alexandra Matvichuk speaking in a video produced by the Right Livelihood Foundation. She's one of this year's Right Livelihood laureates. Now in Ukraine, we are going through the difficult times. We are fighting for our freedom in all senses. For a freedom to be independent country. For a freedom to be Ukrainians with our own language and culture. And for a freedom to have a democratic choice. We are documenting war crimes in this war with Russia in order to hold war criminals accountable, to provide justice for each victims of these crimes. 
Ola van Uxkul is the executive director of the Right Livelihood Award Foundation, which is based in Stockholm, Sweden. They produced that video uh, because uh, um, th uh, the Center for um, uh, the CCL, the Ukraine Human Rights Group, uh, the Center for Civil Liberties, um, not only won the Nobel Peace Prize today, but it was just announced they won the Right Livelihood Awards. Can you talk about the significance of the two organizations conversing, the Nobel Committee and the Right Livelihood Awards, and just who Alexandra, CCL, um, Memorial, and the Belarusian group, uh, Belarusian human rights activists in prison right now, um, what this means, Ola? Thank you, Amy, and um, congratulations, Anna. I am overjoyed. It was amazing for us to hear this morning when we followed the announcement from Oslo. And then, as you heard, a first Right Livelihood Award laureate was announced as a Nobel Peace Laureate, and then a second one, and then even a third one. And um, awarding them together, I think, is very significant. It's a very, very good sign. And it's particularly significant that they receive a peace award. They as defenders of democracy and as defenders of the rule of law, receive a peace award. Because as Anna already pointed out, democracy is really a precondition for peace. And, and we see in their work how they are uh, laying the foundations for post-Soviet societies to be peaceful. And um, that, I mean, that's something we've been hearing from Memorial and from Alex Bialyatsky, who have been our laureates uh, for a bit longer, for many years, that the crackdown they experience in their own countries also has to be read and understood as a preparation for war. And I think it, it's particularly fantastic. I mean, they both, uh, Biasna, uh, Alex Bialyatsky and Memorial are from, still from, have their roots in the democracy movement of the 80s. Alexandra Matvichuk, who we just heard is a younger generation of democracy activist. I think she's 38 years now, um, started her activism already 15 years ago. And this work that she does really shows the alternative to that kind of brutal aggression, the alternative which um, you can find in, in international law and accountability. And Anna, if you can talk about the significance of a Russian group, um, a Belarusian um, human rights activist now in prison and CCL in Ukraine winning this award together. In the West, it's always presented as Russia versus Ukraine. But um, your perspective as a human rights activist and lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Uh, a lot of people are now concerned about the words which were said in the Nobel Peace Committee, saying that uh, they were hoping for the peaceful coexistence. And actually, a lot of, for many people of Ukraine, the, those words about peaceful coexistence were very, very controversial. And uh, some people will also see that building this together, like bringing Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia together, is some kind of attempt to stress out that these countries still have the common past and maybe they still have common future as as uh, that's what uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, government is hoping for. So here I see some uh, potential contradiction, but uh, at the same time I know that, and we all know that there always will be people who are not satisfied or completely happy with uh, this or uh, any other decision. Um, some people in uh, my team in Memorial, they said, 
that uh, I spoke to them this morning and they said that we think that we don't deserve it because we couldn't stop the war. We couldn't be receiving the peace prize in this uh, horrible moment uh, because, uh, yeah, the war is still going. We couldn't stop the war in Chechnya. There was a war in Georgia. There was a war in Syria and in many other places. But again, uh, the question is, uh, would it be different without us? And we most truly know that it, uh, the, the world will be, will be probably a worse uh, place without uh, uh, human rights activists in Belarus and Ukraine and, of course, in Russia. And I'm definitely hoping that for Alex Biliatsky, uh, my long-time esteemed colleague, that this will help to put not just him, but many other people, uh, activists and journalists from Belarus, uh, out of the bars because uh, they keep receiving horrible... Um, Sentences. Just yesterday, a very prominent journalist, Andrei Alexandrov, was sentenced to 14 years uh, in prison, which is uh, absolutely horrible. And I'm just hoping that the demonstration that there is a peace prize and that the international community is paying attention to uh, the work of civil society in all the three countries will definitely change uh, the fate, not just of the laureates, but of everyone. I want to go to um, the imprisoned Belarusian activist Alas Bialyatsky, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize. This is a couple-minute video produced by the Right Livelihood Foundation when he won in 2020. Alice Bielatsky is a human rights activist in Belarus, leading an almost 30-year campaign for democracy and freedom. In 1996, he founded the human rights center Vyazna, which today is the country's leading organization documenting human rights abuses and monitoring elections. Belarus, under the authoritarian rule of President Alexander Lukashenko, is often referred to as Europe's last dictatorship. Elections are rigged, opposition voices are silenced, and civil society is severely restricted. Bieletsky has been arrested more than 25 times and spent several years in prison on trumped-up charges as Belarusian authorities have tried to impede him. The government has also frequently targeted Vyazna and its members. However, Bielatsky and Vyazna's persistent and long-standing efforts to empower the people of Belarus and ensure their democratic rights have rendered them an unstoppable force for freedom. During the recent large-scale pro-democracy demonstrations, Vyazna has been playing a leading role in advocating for the freedom of assembly, defending the rights of people arrested for protesting, and documenting human rights abuses. Bielatsky and Vyazna continue to stand for the multitude of courageous people protesting Lukashenko's dictatorial reign at high personal risk. Through their commitment to democracy and freedom, Bielatsky and Vyazna have laid the foundations of a peaceful and democratic society in Belarus. And let's hear the imprisoned Belarusian human rights activist Alas Bialatsky in his own words. Again, today it was announced he's won the Nobel Peace Prize. He spoke in Stockholm when he won the 2020 Right Livelihood Award. 
Dear friends, this year's Right Livelihood Award to the Human Rights Center, Vyaznia and myself, is a very important and exciting moment in our lives. We are receiving the award, popularly called the Alternative Nobel Prize, at a time when a peaceful revolution is underway in Belarus. For six months now, the Belarusian society has been engaged in a breathtaking struggle, a fight for human rights, democracy and justice. A fight for the right to be called people, as the Belarusian writer Yanka Kupala has said. A fight against Europe's last dictator and the regime he has built over 26 years. Alas Bielatsky ended his Right Livelihood Award acceptance speech speaking in English. Um, he congratulated his fellow winners, including the leading human rights activist in the United States, Brian Stevenson, and the Right Livelihood Award winner, the Iranian human rights lawyer Nasrin Satuda, who was in prison at the time. There, Nasrin is in a terrible situation now. I can imagine how it is for her to be in prison and even harder to go back. Sometimes I have dreams that I'm in prison again, and those are my darkness dreams. My heart and thoughts are with Nasrin now. Thank you. Nasreen Satudeh, the Iranian human rights lawyer, was in prison in 2020. She is home now on medical leave from prison. Um, Ola Vanakskul, I want to go back to you um, to talk about that moment. I was just texting with Brian Stevenson, who also won that year. He's calling for Alice's freedom for his release from prison, congratulated him, winning the Nobel Peace Prize today. Um, he was not able to meet him in person because it was in the midst of the pandemic. I believe Alice was the only one, right, who came to Sweden for the yes. awards. And so you spent time with him. Yeah, that uh, was really incredible also not to, to hear his words there again and very typical for him to always think of others first and think of the the international and you know universal nature of this fight for democracy and for human rights. And uh, he called the prospect of having to go to prison his darkest dream in what we just heard. And unfortunately, that is what happened last summer. He was arrested again together with other Vyasna colleagues. He just spent his 60th birthday now a couple of uh, days ago in prison in very bad conditions that we've also been protesting at the UN Human Rights Council. So with this Nobel Peace Prize now, Belarus has to understand that they have to immediately release Alice Berliatsky and all the Vyasna staff and other pro-democracy uh, fighters who are in prison. And they also, and Russia has to understand that they have to end their legal prosecution of, mem of Memorial. And I hope that will be the effect of this award. Earlier this year, Democracy Now! spoke to Natalia Satsankevich. She works with the imprisoned Belarusian activist Alice Bielatsky in their organization, which in English translates into spring. She was speaking to us um, from Vilnia. This was in March, um, from Vilnius um, in Lithuania, talking about her country. 
there are more than 1,000 of political prisoners uh, in Belarus, and the conditions where they stay, they're awful. It influences extremely on their health, and uh, there is at least one case when a person died in Belarusian prison, a political prisoner. So uh, I really call you to keep in focus um, this topic also, political prisoners in Belarus, and uh, to spread this information, to show your solidarity and to support them by uh, sending letters and postcards of solidarity from all countries from the world. So, Anna Dubrovskaya, uh, again, you're in Moscow, uh, executive director of what was the Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow. If you can talk about the role of Belarus right now in Russia's uh, war on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, it is very hard uh, to, to describe what is going on because um, we have the official um, position, which is like um, Belarus has nothing to do with the war, but uh, unofficially we, of course, see that a lot of uh, troops, a lot of uh, weaponry and a lot of uh, like logistical flaws are made through Belarus. And it was recently reported that there was first uh, missile uh, issued uh, on Ukrainian territory from Belarus. And Lukashenko is a very uh, close person to Putin. He's like... Uh, the closest companion maybe of uh, all post-Soviet countries. And in terms of civil society, we see that Belarus is like a few steps ahead of us, uh, ahead of Russia. And unfortunately, what is happening in Belarus, uh, what was happening in Belarus before starts happening in Russia, like uh, maybe in a couple of years. And uh, right now, the the situation there with the civil society and everything is uh, absolutely horrible. But unfortunately, in the international uh, agenda, people of Belarus, as well as people of Russia, are presented often as those who support the war, which is absolutely not true, and especially for Belarus. It's a country where almost no protest is uh, possible and where people are being um, severely beaten up and detained, uh, even uh, even if they try to do something very, very innocent, like, I don't know, uh, giving money to some opposition groups or something like that. And unfortunately, looking at Belarus, we always see that this is the future of Russia. If nothing changes. Today's Nobel announcement comes on Vladimir Putin's 70th birthday and also on the 16th anniversary of the assassination of a fierce journalist, uh, Anna Polakovskaya, critic of Putin, uh, critic of Russia's war in Chechnya, crusading human rights and anti-corruption reporter. Um, what do we know about her death at this time, Anna? Uh, I'm not sure about the recent developments, um, but I, I think that it was not properly investigated at this moment as it happened with the death of all other journalists and human rights activists in Russia. There probably are some people who are being imprisoned due to the fact that they are being the like uh, th- those who implemented the, the murder itself, but uh, there was no proper investigation of her death or of the death of Natalia Istimirova who's a human rights uh, activist from Chechnya and uh, my colleague from Memorial. So unfortunately, all these uh, crimes are not being, uh, yeah, they're not being taken care of by by the government. Uh, 
Previously, we had the possibility of going to European court if uh, stuff like this happened. But right now, it's not the option again for the Russian human rights defenders. Uh, so, yeah, uh, her death was a, was a tragedy. It was the first one, uh, followed by, uh, unfortunately, many others. And to this day, she's very well remembered. People, uh, She has books. Uh, people come bringing flowers to the place in Moscow where she lived. And uh, everyone understands that uh, this death, her, her killing, her murder was like... Uh, the point of no return where uh, it was already clear that Russia is going into some strange direction. Uh, now, how do you see this war ending? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I would really, really hope. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's really difficult because um, a lot of people are hoping that Ukraine will win. I'm hoping that uh, there could be some possible settlement. I'm definitely seeing that Russia will pay a lot of money to everything uh, that happened in Ukraine, and that I'm really hoping that it will there will be some international tribunal uh, against the war criminals, against the military criminals, and people who were accountable will be uh, held accountable further. That's that's my hope. Uh, will there be some peace negotiation now or later? That's just very very hard to predict, and a lot of people are saying that no peace is possible and no peace agreement is possible, which is, of course, understandable. I'm just hoping that um, nobody will die. But unfortunately, the, the conflict is still going on. And Oliver Nuxkul, um, you know, the Right Livelihood Awards are often referred to as the alternative Nobel Prize. Um, now the alternative has merged with the actual Nobel Prize. And if you can talk about what that means and in the world today to see human rights activists and groups in Belarus and Ukraine and Russia all receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, what this could lead to. Thank you, uh, Amy. Yeah, we've been uh, presenting the Right Livelihood Award since uh, 1980, and there has been an understanding of the importance of civil society activism from the very beginning. And with the Nobel Prize, sometimes they honor that, but then also they honor people like Abiy of Ethiopia or Barack Obama, um, with where there seems to be a totally different kind of understanding of um, you know, how change should come about in the world. We believe strongly that um, power lies in uh, people who get organized to fight for uh, important causes like democracy, like peace, like human rights, and that that actually has a huge effect. And in, in this regard, I would say that uh, the three Right Livelihood, now Right Livelihood Nobel laureates who um, won the Nobel Peace Prize today. That's an incredible message of hope. It's really uh, a symbol of the weakness of Vladimir Putin and the old-style military aggression, with all its dangers to world peace, right? I'm not doubting that. But it shows the enormous power of the civilized way to handle conflict in, in international conflicts, to build uh, societies um, for peace, which is, you know, by rule of law through mechanisms of democracy. It's incredible that the, the CCL, the Center for Civil Liberties, Alexandra Matvichuk, who we heard, um, they have uh, collected more than 20,000 pieces of evidence for war crimes. So I have no doubt that there is going to be accountability. Putin is going to emerge as the loser and not through the traditional military means alone, but really be defeated by accountability, by rule of law, by democracy. And that, 
for me is the uh, message of hope, which Nobel uh, picked up this year, very much in line with with our thinking for uh, more than four decades. And um, since yeah, you seem to be a predictor of those who will win the Nobel Peace Prize, can you talk about <laughs> who won this year? You just made the announcement for the Right Livelihood Award Foundation, the four winners. Right. Um, we also gave an award to Somalia this year to uh, Ilwan Elman and Fatun Adan, a mother and daughter who've built the Elman Peace Center, which does local peace work with communities, for instance, disarmament of uh, former combatants, working a lot with child soldiers, working um, against gender-based violence. And uh, for us, it was also very important and, and a really good message to have uh, this conflict in Somalia, which unfortunately for too many uh, around the world uh, is perceived as more of a forgotten conflict, um, you know, to have that honored in the same year with Ukraine, which uh, very rightly so gets a lot of uh, attention right now, because there are so many parallels in, in how you work for peace. And then we always have four laureates. So our award also goes to Seco Sesola, which is a cooperative, a network of cooperatives in Venezuela that are providing more than 100,000 families um, for their needs, much more successfully so than the failing economic system and really shows the power of solidarity economics in times of crisis. And we give an award to the Africa Institute for Energy Governance from Uganda for its work for uh, localized, decentralized, renewable energy and their important voice in the campaign against the disastrous East Africa crude oil pipeline and bringing the voices of local people in, into these international campaigns. And finally, um, we've been tracking the rise of neo-fascism in Europe, whether we're talking about Maloney in Italy, the Brothers of Italy party to be the new well, most far-right prime minister since Mussolini um, uh, is very proud to embrace Mussolini, um, Poland's uh, uh, ruling party, and, of course, what's happening in Sweden with the Sweden Democrats um, might surprise people to hear who the Swedish Democrats are. Is this a concern of yours, Ola, as you speak to us from Stockholm? Oh, it's a huge concern. It is terrible. The Sweden Democrats are a party with its roots in uh, fascism. And the conservative and even the liberal party now chose to align themselves with the Sweden Democrats uh, just for tactical gain in order to be able to get the next prime minister elected. And when traditional um, established parties do something like that, we've seen so many times in, in history, then obviously, um, you know, they, they normalize this kind of hateful discourse, um, which borders to fascism. And in the process, um, people then in the end vote for the original. So uh, the conservatives were defeated, but now together with their new ally, the Sweden Democrats, they will probably form the next government. And that's just it's a terrible blow to to Sweden. It's not a coincidence that an organization like ours was founded in this country, but it was founded in this country because also of our history, long-standing history here, supporting democracy and rule of law and human rights around the world. And now Sweden will not be able to do that in a credible way any longer. And, and people don't seem to realize that that's going to weaken Sweden 
a lot. Like what I just said, you know, the, the power of, uh, of the universal values of democracy and rule of law. Uh, yes, they are under attack, but, um, I think they, they will prevail. And it's, um, it's very sad to see Sweden starting to turn away from this camp. Olivanuxkluwi, thank you so much for being with us, executive director of the Stockholm-based Right Livelihood Award Foundation. Uh, the Right Livelihood Awards have gone to all three Nobel Peace Prize winners announced today. Uh, and I also want to thank Anna Dubrovalskaya, uh, executive director of now closed down Memorial Human Rights Center in Moscow. Memorial um, was just honored uh, by the Norwegian Nobel committee. She was speaking to us from Moscow. Coming up, the President Biden, President Biden pardons thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession. We'll speak to the Drug Policy Alliance. Stay with us. by the satellites. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's announced he'll pardon anyone convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law in a major step towards the decriminalization of cannabis. Biden announced his plan in a video posted on social media. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. So today, I'm taking three steps to end this failed approach. First, I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offense, federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. Second, I'm calling on all governors to do the same for state marijuana possession offenses. Third, the federal government currently classifies marijuana as a Schedule One substance the same as heroin and LSD, and more serious than fentanyl. It makes no sense. So I'm asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to initiate a process to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Even as federal and local regulations of marijuana change, important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales should stay in place. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. 
It's time that we right these wrongs. As President Biden calls on governors to also pardon people found guilty of marijuana charges at the state level, we're joined now by Cassandra Frederick. She is the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Thanks for being with us. Were you surprised, Cassandra, by this announcement? So often when you come to a point like this, the pardoning of all uh, people convicted of uh, marijuana possession at the federal level, it is grassroots organizations and alliances that have pushed something like this forward. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. I think we were open to uh, the president's announcement. For a really long time, groups on the ground have been pushing for us to get to a place where we're descheduling, decriminalizing, reinvesting in communities, um, and really leaving cannabis prohibition behind. And so the, the president's announcement yesterday was an opening uh, gesture to a much broader conversation. Well, before we talk about that broader conversation, explain what it means. He's talking about federal charges. Anyone convicted of federal charges of uh, pot possession uh, are pardoned. So who does this include and who doesn't it include? So it's important to contextualize that these pardons actually remove legal barriers to things like employment, housing, licensing, public benefits. Uh, and this is a, an arena of around 6,500 people. Most people that are currently in the federal system are not there for simple possession. But this is this is going to be really helpful for those 6,500 people. It will also cover those in uh, the District of Columbia who are under this federal um, jurisdiction, that they will also have the opportunity to get their offenses, their code offenses pardoned as well. So we're talking about people who are in prison currently. Is that right? And also, of course, people who um, uh, who are not in prison but have this record. How many do you know will be freed from prison immediately? So what we have um, found is that there are not that many people, if any people, that are currently in the federal system currently solely for simple possession. Um, what we know is that a majority of the people that are going to be impacted by this pardon are people who have these convictions, who are currently navigating the really devastating collateral consequences associated with a federal conviction on um, simple possession. Remember that this is about removing legal barriers, but these people still have convictions on their records. And the other thing that's important is that this doesn't that non-citizens were excluded from this, which is really unfortunate because people who are non-citizens, um, cannabis is one of the main reasons why people are detained or deported. So, as I said, this is an opening gesture for what we are pushing for to be a broader Let me elaborate on that further with a quote from Jane Shim, the senior policy attorney for the Immigrant Defense Project. Her statement reads in part, it's extremely disappointing that the administration went out of its way to exclude undocumented immigrants. Furthermore, even immigrants who are pardoned may remain at risk of detention and deportation because of a marijuana offense, thanks to our punitive immigration laws. Cassandra. That's exactly right. And, you know, Drug Policy Alliance has learned an incredible amount of the, the, the intricacies between immigration policy and drug policy over the last um, decade. And in fact, most people don't realize that our first drug laws were um, xenophobic immigration policies. And so this is why Drug Policy Alliance is working with our groups around the country to really figure out how do we continue to push where the president is right now 
to a broader conversation that's actually going to bring um, a, the, the necessary material condition changes that our community needs. So what's that broader conversation? What are you actually demanding? So we are demanding that the president actually deschedule and decriminalize cannabis. The cannabis should not be in the Controlled Substance Act and that we actually need a situation where we are removing the legal barriers that people are facing around employment, licensing, housing benefits and immigration. Right. Also, this is time for the president to really focus with the Congress to actually push for federal legislation. The federal legislation that's been introduced, like the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, includes the decriminalization that includes resentencing, expungement and the federal government funding the states to do expungement as well. Um, and so, you know, we think that this is super critical. Um, and we also really want people to understand that we are excited to have this conversation, but are very clear about what we know is necessary. We've seen cannabis regulation happening across the country, and we know what works and what's best for communities. So can you talk about the MORE Act, which stands for Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, passed twice by the House? Yes. So this is the first federal um, uh, cannabis regulation bill that passed in Congress in the House of Representatives. It's passed twice. The current iteration of this bill is in the Senate, and that's the Cannabis Administration um, Opportunity Act. And it, it, those things kind of marry a lot of the same things that really work to do the things that I've been talking about, descheduling, decriminalizing, providing relief um, to communities most impacted, as well as reinvesting in communities from the tax revenues that we're getting. So now Biden is saying uh, the governors have to do the same. Uh, how many uh, states were talking uh, recreational marijuana legal in 19 states, Washington, D.C. and Guam? Where do you see movement there? And who is most impacted by these laws? So what we know is that cannabis laws have impacted millions of people around the country. And we also know that it's disproportionately impacting communities of color. Right. And so when we are looking at these pardons that are really trying to remove legal barriers at the federal level, it's it's mostly impacting. It's, it, there's a disproportionate amount of people that are communities of color. But what we also know is and why I keep coming back to the work that Congress needs to do is that even if states um, create pardons, there are some there's still people that are still going to be impacted because the federal barriers have not been changed. Right. So governors are, you know, with governors, we really want them to expeditiously pardons forward. But we recognize that a lot of that is going to be impacting communities of color. But we really need the federal government to remove the barriers now. If the president understands that cannabis legalization or cannabis regulation or cannabis prohibition has created barriers for people getting access to housing, employment, housing, benefits, and really... Um, and for us, we're including the conversation of deportation and detention. Let's not only have the conversation of uh, the descheduling of cannabis, but also let's have the conversation of changing the administrative barriers that are impeding people from being full participants in society. 
Well, Cassandra Frederick, clearly we have a lot more to talk about, but we have no more time today. Executive Director of the Drug Policy Alliance, a national nonprofit fighting to end the so-called war on drugs. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for two full-time jobs, an associate digital editor and a people and culture manager. You can go to democracynow.org to learn more and apply. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.